Well, in our, we are in our second week of looking at the words of Christmas. And last week, we looked at the word peace and saw that Jesus came to bring a deeper sense of peace than we normally think of. Peace is not just inner tranquility or the external avoidance of conflict. We saw from the Bible, the word peace comes from the Hebrew word shalom, which means wholeness. And that Jesus came to return the world to the way that God had intended. Thus, through Jesus' death and resurrection, he brought us peace with God. He brought us peace with others. And even, we saw in Jesus' own life, the wholeness that the world was to have, where Jesus restored illness. He brought people back from death. This week we turn to the word joy. And listen to this description of joy. They all wanted him. They had so longed for him and hoped for him and prayed God for him that now that he was really come, the people went nearly mad for joy. Mere acquaintances hugged and kissed each other and cried. Everybody took a holiday and high and low, rich and poor, feasted and danced and sang. And they kept this up for days and nights together. With these words... The newborn prince, the future king, is introduced. Now this is obviously not the birth of Jesus, but that's rather how Mark Twain describes the birth of Edward Tudor, Prince of Wales, in his novel, The Prince and the Pauper. Yet, while a mere earthly prince is described in that way, his birth, the birth of Jesus had almost no fanfare about it. In fact, those nearest to it didn't even let the pregnant mother have a room to stay in. The only clear joy on that night was announced by an angel to shepherds. And let's turn and read to that in Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. So Luke chapter 2, verses 8 through 12. This is the joy. Joy not in the manger that we see, but joy announcing the manger and what it would bring. Luke 2, 8-12 says, And in the same region there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And the angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you this day is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling claws and lying in a manger. In a much greater way than the birth of Edward Tudor, the world should have rejoiced at the birth of Jesus, for it is good news of great joy. It was not just this announcement, though, that told of great joy. If you know the biblical story, you know before this that Mary's cousin Elizabeth was to give birth in her old age to John the Baptist. And when Mary went to visit Elizabeth, she says, Elizabeth says, For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. The baby in Elizabeth's womb, just at the hearing of the mother of Jesus coming, the one who was pregnant with Jesus leaped for joy. Or later, the Magi came from the east and talked to Herod. And then it says, Matthew 2.10, When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Yet for 
all of this talk of joy, some people find Christmas to be a joyless time. They are not with family, friends, and loved ones, but rather they might be alone. Another year has come and gone, and sadness and grief mark them more than joy does. Yes, in public they, or dare I may say we, put on a cheerful face, but underneath the mask is discouragement, sorrow, and despair. Life just doesn't seem to be bringing joy. Did the angelic messengers mess it up? Did they get something wrong? No, they didn't. But we have to realize the unusual nature of the Bible's message on joy. So to do that, we're going to examine three questions. If you have a bulletin, you can see this on the back. First, why is the Bible so serious about joy? Second, did joy really come? And lastly, why the odd words in the Bible about joy? But first, why so serious about joy? I wonder, have you ever wrestled with the fact that God demands your joy? God commands in Philippians 4.4, Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, rejoice. Psalm 33.1 likewise orders, Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. It was Christians, we often recognize God demands our devotion, that we obey Him, but we also need to see that God demands our delight in Him. We are to find joy in Him more than anything else. Knowing God is not just about having the answer to life's philosophical questions. God's desire is not that you come to church just so you can raise moral children. Being faithful to God is not just leading a quiet moral life. God demands we find our joy in Him. We see this worked out not only in command, but also in condemnation. In Revelation chapter 3, 15 through 16, God condemns the church at Laodicea by saying, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew you out of my mouth. God demands joy in him. Or in Deuteronomy 28, Moses is telling Israel why they're going to be punished. And he says in verse 47, Because you did not serve the Lord your God with joyfulness and gladness of heart because of the abundance of all things, therefore you shall serve your enemies. Israel was punished because they didn't serve the Lord with joy and gladness. Now to clarify, we need to realize when we talk about joy, the Bible is not equating that with a smile on our face all the time and a pep in our step. Another way to consider joy would be a thing we considered Wednesday night, and that is, where do you find comfort? On Wednesday night, we talked about some people find comfort in food, comfort food. Might be grandma's macaroni and cheese. It might be a plate of fried chicken with gravy and mashed potatoes on the side. It might be your favorite pizza place and the pizza that you love. Other people find Comfort in drink. There's even a drink called Southern Comfort. Some people find comfort in a place. Might be the beach or the mountains or it might be something as simple as their couch with a blanket and their favorite song or book or movie on in the background. God has given us all these good and varied comforts, 
but they all fall short of the true and lasting comfort we should have. The Heidelberg Catechism opens with this great question. What is your only comfort in life and in death? It answers that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. That is our great comfort in life and in death. But then the second question asked, what do you need to know in order to live and die in the joy of this comfort? They make that connection that what you find your comfort in is really what you find joy in. And they answer, first, how great my sins and misery are. Second, how I am delivered from all my sins and misery. Third, how I am to be thankful to God for all of my deliverance. You know, it's as we understand these primary issues of our sin, the misery that it causes in this life and the next, and the deliverance that we have through Jesus coming, that we understand the good news of great joy. Because the shepherds were not just told by the angel, we bring you good news of great joy, stop. They went on and explained what is the good news of great joy. And they say, for unto you this is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. That is our joy. That is our comfort. So as we go through the sermon, we'll see some things that bring us sorrow. And yet as you understand the bigger perspective, you can have comfort and joy even in the midst of your sorrow. Imagine you're standing and all of a sudden someone just comes up and just shoves you to the ground. Well, you would rightfully be angry. What are you doing? But as you were about to get up and say that, if you turn and see a car whiz past, you would be saying, thank you. Oh, I didn't see it. And you came and you shoved me out of the way. I appreciate you doing that. And if someone said, well, you got a scrape on your knee, you'd go, well, yeah, but they saved my life. Who cares about that? As you understand the bigger picture of what we've been delivered from, all the minor scrapes in life, take their proper perspective. And yet others are constantly trying to steal our comfort and our joy. They're trying to say, come to me and I will give you comfort. I can give you joy in this life. During the reign of the Nazi government, the the leaders realized the importance of shaping their people's joy and their comfort. Thus, a new version of Silent Night was introduced for the children to sing. Silent Night, Holy Night, All is calm, all is bright. Only the Chancellor stays on guard. Germany's future to watch and award. Guarding our nation aright, guarding our nation aright. Silent night, holy night. All is calm, all is bright. Adolf Hitler is Germany's star. Showing us greatness and glory afar. Bringing us Germans the might. Bringing us Germans the might. You know, they were trying to, from the cradle, say this is where comfort, this is where joy can come from. This is what can give you security in life. 
And yet while they tried to steal that joy and comfort that Christ brings at Christmas, that silent night, their attempts were futile. They couldn't even last one generation of bringing comfort before they were overthrown. True comfort and lasting joy only can come from God. Thus God demands that we find our joy and comfort in Him. Now I know for many when we hear that God demands our joy and not just obedience, that can be a little bit odd at first. So let me maybe give an illustration that may help. We're almost at Christmas time. And imagine a new married couple and they decide this Christmas we're going to go to her parents' house. And they go, and they're there a few days, and about the time they're getting ready to leave, the new mother-in-law says to her son-in-law, this is a fake story, this didn't happen, by the way, says to her son-in-law, thank you so much for coming, for giving up time with your family to be with us. All that appreciation is going to quickly dissolve if he says, well, I didn't actually want to be here, but I was told I had to do this so that next year we'd go to my parents' house. Well, he did it. He did what was right. But it has no meaning when he doesn't want to do it. If we go back to, again, the mother-in-law saying, thank you for coming. If he says, it was my joy. It was my pleasure. Then all the more is she thankful for what he did. In the same way, if we expect that on the human level, and we can understand that, how much more our creator does he deserve not just that we obey, but we do it with joy in our hearts, with delight that obeying Him is not just something we drudge through, but that we delight to do. Yet for all this talk of joy, was Jesus any more successful than the others? That's our second section. Did Jesus really bring joy? Did joy really come? Now you may have thought, or now have the final piece of evidence to conclude that your pastor has lost it. How can we even discuss, did Jesus bring joy? Of course he did. But let's consider first Jesus' biological family. You know, due to Jesus, they experienced much suffering and sorrow. Mary had to live with the awkward reality that though she was a virgin, she was with child. I'm sure most people in Nazareth didn't just go, oh yeah, the Holy Spirit gave birth to that child. And then even her husband-to-be was going to put her away. He didn't believe until an angelic messenger came and told him. How much sorrow must that have caused as they lived in that town for years to come? They traveled while pregnant. They had to sleep in an animal shelter. And then they had to lay their newborn child in a feeding trough. Surely that did not bring a lot of enjoyable moments. Then, when they brought Jesus to the temple to be purified, a righteous man named Simeon took Jesus in his arm and he blessed him. And then he also said to Mary, in Luke 2.35, that a sword would pierce her own soul. That does not sound like joy. Deep emotional pain would come because she was the mother of Jesus. Well, yes, soon after this was the high point when the Magi came from the east and gave them these gifts. And that must have been wonderful. Oh, Jesus, because we're connected, we get joy. Yet that quickly turned to a message from an angel saying, flee for your life. Herod wants to kill your son. Living in Egypt, fearing that your child would be assassinated, probably brought much anxiety, fear, trepidation, and heartache. 
as well, once Jesus began his public ministry, we read in Mark 3.20 that Jesus' own siblings believed him to be crazy. Well, that probably made for some awkward Thanksgiving meals. Oh, here's Jesus, the crazy one. Kids, come on, don't say that about him. There was much anguish in this family. On top of all this, Mary had to go through the pain of not only her son's death, but also of his betrayal, his false condemnation, and public humiliation through crucifixion. Again, all the while, her children is thinking Jesus is just mad. That doesn't seem like Jesus brought them a joy-filled life. And yet Mary's own words are, From now on, all generations will call me blessed. How? Because she was able to be part of God's redemption of the world. She bore the unique privilege of giving birth to God's eternal Son, God Himself, Jesus, who came in the flesh. And that made all those other sufferings worth it. So while Mary experienced some sorrow from being so close to Jesus, she still experienced joy. And yet now someone today, okay, but yes, we're after the resurrection. We can see all this. Shouldn't Christians always be full of joy? 1 Peter 1.8, Peter tells the believers, Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Or Paul tells us the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy. Or the night of Jesus' betrayal, he warned his disciples of what was to come. And he told them in John 16, which we read earlier, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. So Jesus was risen from the dead. He was seen again. Shouldn't we always be going along, skipping joy in our hearts? Well, the answer of these questions is yes. Loving and knowing Jesus does bring inexpressible joy. Joy is the fruit of the Spirit. And yes, no person can take our joy from us. Yet, we have to realize at the same time, Jesus has not returned to stay. His kingdom has not fully come. Thus, we now live with a mixture of emotions as we deal with this in-between time of Jesus' first and his second coming. Therefore, even Paul, as he's thinking of the Jews, the unbelieving Jews, he writes in Romans 9-2, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. In regards to believers dying, Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians 4.13, We do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who do not have hope. Notice Paul did not say you shouldn't grieve because you believe in the resurrection. He says we don't want you to grieve as others do. So yes, there is grief. And Jesus himself wept over unbelieving Israel and wept when his own friends died. Yes, Jesus did come to bring joy, but until all the curse of sin is removed at his return, 
we'll have moments and seasons of grief mixed with joy. Thus we eagerly wait for him to return. Thus did Jesus really bring joy? Yes. For the joy of Christmas is tied to knowing that Jesus is God's eternal son who took on flesh because our sin must be defeated and he perfectly saves us by his death and resurrection. This was not an all the time smiling type of joy though. Even Jesus Jesus himself, it was for the joy that was set before him endured the cross. Jesus did not smile on the way to the cross. Jesus' joy was a mixture of anguish, tears, sorrow, physical and spiritual pain, and yet joy in the bottom of all of it. So in this time of waiting for Jesus' return, we are, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 6.10, sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So even in the midst of tears in our face, there can be a sorrow, but yet a joy in the bottom of our hearts, knowing that this is not the last word. And understanding all of this helps us to understand why the Bible has such odd words about joy. Our last section, why the odd words about joy. If you're old or getting old, you may remember Carl Sagan's show, Cosmos. And Cosmos began with him saying, The cosmos is all that is, or ever was, or ever will be. Several years past, you may remember the saying, YOLO, you only live once, became quite popular to say. Someone would do something daredevilish and just say, YOLO, I mean, I'm only going to live once. But both of those statements, whether Carl Sagan's or YOLO, are based on the assumption that all that exists is what you can see with your eyes and perceive. And that when we die, that's it. But both of those statements are assuming that there's nothing that's true that we can't see. They're saying, look, there's no resurrection or reincarnation or judgment before God. Yes, the cosmos will go on, but once your cells die, that's it for you. Your existence ceases. And yet when most people consider the implications of what that means, they quickly disagree. Because that would mean life ultimately has no meaning. There is no purpose and all your joys and sorrows are basically nothing at all. So we say this, oh, that's not true. And yet we often live for the moment. Where it happens right now is what's most important. Yet in contrast to those short-sighted, godless views of life, Jesus in the Bible makes some startling statements. For example, in Luke chapter 6, 20 through 23, Jesus said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and when they revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets also. And yet what Jesus said is the exact opposite of what we want now. We want to be well thought of. We want to be laughing and satisfied and feeling confident about ourselves. Yet Jesus says, 
poverty of spirit, hunger, weeping, and suffering for his name are what leads to happiness. And yet that doesn't seem like a joyful life to us. In fact, many people say if that's what will bring joy, then I'm skipping out on that. You know, Jesus gives us words that don't make sense if YOLO is true. That says we have to have all of our blessings right now. Yet Jesus tells us it is better for His sake to have less now so we can have more later. He promises that though things may not look bright now, the future is gloriously bright if we stay faithful to Him. And there's a deep beauty to Jesus' words when you think about it because it is saying that anyone can have true and lasting happiness. It's not limited to a certain race or gender or age or socioeconomic status. A happy life does not mean you have to have possessions. If that was true, then only the rich could have it. If a joyful life has to have control and power, then only those in authority have it. If a blessed life means you have to be healthy and fit, then those without the right physique or who are handicapped can't have it. If joy is found in a house, spouse, 2.4 kids, a white picket fence, and a nice vacation, then countless numbers of people will never experience joy and happiness. Yet Jesus offers true and lasting happiness to anyone and everyone. You don't need something you don't have. You need someone. You need Jesus and to trust in Him. You know, Jesus came to bring joy to this world. And He shows that comes not from Him giving you health and wealth now. Rather, it is giving Himself to you. And so that you can know Him for all eternity. Jesus describes it this way in Matthew 13, 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy, he goes and sells all that he has and buys that field. Knowing the joy of Christmas is to know that no other joy compares to the one born on Christmas. It is not merely to have family together, to get the perfect gifts or great meals. It's not having everything the way you desire, but submitting to how he arranges your life. Joy is found not in looking and living for self, but in looking and living for the Savior. And that again, this only makes sense if we realize our present situation is not the full reality. We can sacrifice something good now because something better awaits. And don't we really do this all the time? You're going to have a nice meal out at a restaurant so you stop nibbling on snacks in the afternoon because you want to enjoy what's coming ahead. You want to live and own a home so you live in a cheaper apartment so you can save up. We sacrifice now for the better that is to come. Yes, this life can be filled with sorrow, but God will wipe away the tears from our eyes. As Psalm 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may tarry for the night, but joy comes with the morning. And all of this, because for unto you this day is born in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. 
Jesus, the Savior, delivers us from all the effects of sin. And that's why we sing, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make His blessings flow, far as the curse is found. You know, the lie from the very beginning is that God is withholding good, that He's withholding joy from us, that following Him is going to bring suffering, and rebelling against Him will bring life. But following God in all of His commands will bring you great joy, though again, not always with an immediate smile. In C.S. Lewis' Screwtape's letters, the senior demon is upset at God, and he declares, God's a hedonist at heart. All those fasts and vigils and stakes and crosses are only a facade, only like foam on the seashore. Out at sea, out in God's sea, there is pleasure and more pleasure. God makes no secret of it. At his right hand are pleasures forevermore. And yet, sadly, at this point, many Christians have been led astray by bad philosophy and a misunderstanding of what Jesus said. Now, Jesus didn't say not to seek our joy. He said to seek that joy in Him. Jesus calls us to rejoice and His promises future rewards of joy. The problem is that we seek joy in all the wrong places and our desires for it are too weak. As a quite often quoted but beautiful statement, Lewis again says, Indeed, if we consider the unblushing promises of, our, of rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy has been offered to us. We are far too easily pleased, like an ignorant child who goes on making mud pies in the slum, because he cannot imagine what is meant by an offer of a holiday at the sea. Again, it was for the joy set before him that Jesus endured the cross. And we are to pursue that same joy. In fact, our chief purpose is to glorify God by enjoying him forever. And one of the greatest ways to know this joy is to share with others. When you tell your friends and family who don't believe about Christ, you are trying to share with them joy. You're trying to give them comfort. So where are you turning for joy? Has our materialistic culture shaped you so you think joy is always going to come with newer and faster? That pleasure is just the right Christmas present away? If we can just have that meal or experience this or be with those people, then life will finally be meaningful and satisfying. You know, I heard someone say this week, that the most depressed people are the ones who've had all their dreams come true. You know, the flip side to that is not that is not true, because many people have found joy in their dreams coming true. Yet, for many of the most depressed, they have had all their dreams come true, and then they realized, is this it? I still want more. And I had everything I wanted. It was not enough. It didn't last. It was fleeting and temporary. Jesus, though, gives us a joy that will last. Listen again in John 16. So also you have sorrow now, who I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. On this earth, in this life, your joy will ebb and it will flow. 
Yet when Jesus returns, the joy that he will bring will never be taken away. And not just any joy, the most full joy. That's why Jesus says in John 15, 11, These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. Thus, we've been brought great news of a great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. May we rejoice in Him. Let's pray. O Lord, may we taste and see and know that You are good. May we rejoice in You. Yes, we do have tribulation in this world, but may we take cheer, take comfort. You have overcome. And one day You will return in our joy will then never be taken away. Thank you that your son came, and it's in his name we come and pray. Amen.